Hey guys, it's me, Kirk Bracken. We have a great interview coming up for you here in just a bit, but following up our recent training Tuesday on bad coaching, Bracken has a little more to say and follow that episode up, don't you, Bracken? I do. First of all, I'd like to say thank you to everyone. We have never had this outpouring of messages after an episode ever. It is essentially nonstop since the episode. We have not replied to a lot of people because we have so many messages to wade through. However, we need to post a retraction. Um, at the very end of our episode, we talked about coaches we support and recommend. And we did that with the intent of getting more good info and coaching out to the community at large. And we received a large number of responses about one of the coaches that we recommended. I'm not looking to railroad anybody, but I am looking to abide by our own principles here, which is information, transparency, and good of the community. And one of the coaches we recommended received a lot. I don't know if a lot's the right word, but enough. A lot is the right word. Unfortunately. A lot. We did receive a lot of messages, a lot of negative um, criticism. And we talked about throughout the five star, throughout the one star, listen to the voices of reason. And unfortunately, there were a lot of voices of reason that I trust. So I have since reached out to this coach and explained that I was going to do an addendum to the interview and remove my support vocally for that coach. Stand by my words that this coach knows how to get people fit in the right circumstances. But there have been too many people that have reached out and said, hey, I cannot support you guys supporting this coach and given specific reasons why. And I need to address that. I feel bad about this. I recommended people contact someone that may not be healthy for their long-term development. We have many people that have worked well with this coach, but there's enough that haven't that I feel compelled to address this. So I'm editing yesterday's podcast to remove my support. And moving forward, I want this to reaffirm something that we talked about yesterday, which is you have to do your due diligence. And I failed on that. Kirk and I preached about it yesterday, and yet I, I did not do enough research before I promoted something. And so contact your coaches ahead of time. Contact the people that have worked with those coaches and do your due diligence. I will be better about it. And we want you to be good about it as well, because every coach will work for some people, but there are too many people that have not worked with certain coaches and you need to find those things out and do your due diligence. So moving forward, it kind of helps define what Kirk and I are going to do. We really like recommending products. We really like recommending people. We really like shouting people out, but we're worried that we might be too flippant about it. And so moving forward, we are going to stop lending our support to anything that does not fully meet our vetting process. Products, shoes, you know, gear, nutrition, and most importantly, people. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are we're learning as we go here, Bracken, aren't we? We are not podcasting or people in the light professionals. No. We are we are figuring this out as we go, and um, we still got things to learn as well, don't we? And so I I appreciate the humility there. I'm you know one part guilty as well, and and I think it's a good lesson for us as as hosts of people of influence to 
we do our research, trust us, but we can be better. And so I think it's admirable that you wanted to take a second to talk about this. It has to be done. If, if I'm willing to recommend something, I, I must be able to stand behind it every single time. And in this, this instance, I can't wholeheartedly say that I do. And so we're going to be better about it. And, and it was interesting. I went through this, this process internally and verbally with Lisa when all of a sudden we got our first message about it. And I was like, huh, that's weird. And then our second message. It's like, wow, I just received that same type of message. And suddenly 20 messages later, 30 messages later, Kirk and I are calling each other and scratching our heads like, did we just open up a can of worms? Uh, I wish I never would have done this. I wish I would have just left that part of the episode out. That was, I, I overreached. We didn't plan on talking about people we supported. I just wanted to put a positive spin on things. I shouldn't have ever done it. And then after an hour or so, I thought, you know what? This is for the greater good. Selfishly. I was thinking I shouldn't have done it, but now I'm glad I'm glad we did because this started another conversation and it brings issues to the public awareness. If these are entirely true, then the person in question is going to address their shortcomings as a coach. And if they're not entirely true, well, maybe they're partially true and that person is going to address shortcomings as a coach. So basically the way I'm looking at this is this is going to be a net positive for the community. Because people are now aware that they need to be more discerning with coaches, myself included, and the coaches themselves know that they're under a microscope. Mm -hmm. So the podcast has now been edited and replaced with the coaches we still stand behind. And my apology is out there. And I truly look at this as an apology. I'm sorry. I put information out that I couldn't stand behind. I forgive you, Bracken. And I think the running public forgives you too. And coincidentally... Um, this precursor ties nicely to our episode with Bailey that's about to come up. So it's fitting. Thank you, Bracken. Thank you, Kurt. You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to motor runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. Well, technology is revolutionary, apparently, but I just really very difficult. Use it. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. That's right. Your generation's not brought up with technology. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. it's weird. I'm supposed to be in the young population that actually knows what they're doing, but it's okay. We're not considered boomers, are we, Bracken? We're not that old. <laughs> No, <laughs> I'm 37. I thought boomers were like 60. They are. They are. <laughs> okay. So age actually is my first question for you. I think you're way younger than I thought you were. I am 25. So I'm the same age as Johnny. Okay. Yeah. Because I was stalking you okay. online and I saw some, maybe the website was wrong, but it looked like you ran some track races in 2019. Is that true? That is true. Yep. Wow. That, that's, that's just a young man and young woman's game to be getting on the track. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I, I ran track in college and I saw that. yeah, I took this, um, kind of weird gap of not competing. And then when I came back, I was like, well, the only thing I know is track. So that's what I'm going to do. And, um, quickly realized that that's definitely more of a college thing. Mm. And so I always wonder what it'd be like, because I stopped competing on the track immediately after college. Um, 
And I always thought it'd be a little weird going back, like with the young kids, you're kind of like a lone wolf out there on the track doing your own thing, not a part of a team. I assume that's how you raced. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. I I was training with, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Andy Wacker, um, Mm -hmm. but I was training with him and his wife. And um, so there was a little bit of a team aspect, but it's still like, I'm not wearing a college jersey and everyone else is, you know, like it's definitely feels a little bit isolating. Um, But in Boulder, there's a pretty huge track scene and pretty huge post-collegiate track scene because you have the Emma Coburns of the world out here um, Mm. still training. But um, yeah, I kind of quickly realized that that was more of a college thing and and I wasn't really feeling it anymore post-collegiately. What did you realize you didn't like? Um, I don't know. I feel like there was a cutthroat, there was a very cutthroat environment um, and feeling to track. Like it was very numbers based and very um, you against everyone else. Whereas in the trail community and um, even in the OCR community, from what I've seen, it's a little more, there's a little more sense of camaraderie. And Mm -hmm. I really like that. I think it's obviously everyone's competitive and everyone wants what's best for themselves, but there's also um, a sense of unity with the competition, which is really nice. I I did some post-collegiate track meets dabbling as well. And what I realized is if you're not on the track, running track workouts consistently, you lose it really fast. Yeah. yeah. You can go to a road 5k and do just fine, but you jump on the track and little differences in fitness and body type and ability are huge on a track where on the trail or you can overcome things with a downhill or a climb or terrain. Uh, It's black and white. It's cutthroat and you're spit out the back and now you're just miserable. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And it's very, it's a very niche speed. I feel like it's very neuromuscular. Like you have to have that, um, that practice on the track and that turnover. And otherwise you really can't hide from your weaknesses. Whereas, um, I'm not saying that there's, there's a lot of weak people in the other areas, but you know, on the trail, like I could technically be a weak flat runner, but I could make up for it in the climbs and the downhills and not have any issue at the end of the Mm -hmm. day. Tell you what, the first mile I jumped into post-collegially, and I think you were a middle distance runner as well. Yeah, yep. There's a lot of lactate involved there. That's oh, wow. The first one I jumped in, we came through the quarter at maybe 62, which is fast, but it's not like anything I haven't tried before. Right. And my arms were starting to rig. Oh, that's the worst. I was like, what? <laughs> what is this? That's not a good sign. 405 meters in and my arms are starting to tie up. Like if I'm not running hard twos and fours on the track, I do not belong jumping onto a track race. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I've Uh, had that same feeling. I'm like, why are my arms tingling? And that's, (laughs) that's usually not a great sign. It's usually not a great sign. (laughs) You know what I would describe the difference between like the track community and the trail community. One, the trail community is a little bit older and more like I would say distinguished. So we have like a little more age on our side, which would hopefully come with maturity. Mm. But I would say the track scene, like we all have our egos, right? Like if we're high end competitors, we all believe in ourselves in some capacity. And I could say that would be called ego, right? Mm -hmm. And in track, it feels like at that level, people can't get past their own egos enough to be friends with one another. But in the trail community, for some reason, we can break through our egos and fist bump and root for everybody else. And it's like, that's the most most notable difference between like, I would say the two for me. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more. That's like, you put words in my mouth. That's exactly how I feel. Um, It's interesting because in the track world, I was kind of one of the older people and it's like, "Mm, 
should I be mm -hmm. here anymore? And in the trail world, everyone's like, wow, you're so young. You have so many <laughs> years. So it's kind of that shift in mentality too. It's a little bit exciting to know that um, the future's ahead of me instead of feeling like I'm a college burnout, still trying to hang on to something that might not be there. That's interesting. And do you know what I blame it on? Spikes. Spikes. <laughs> the moment you lace up spikes, everything changes and everyone flashes back to every time they've ever put spikes on and you're closed off and you're like pacing and you're anxious. And now if you're 25 or 28 lacing up spikes, that's a weird thing for an adult to do. It's kind of true. Yeah. But on the trails, like you lace on your, your racing shoes and everyone's there to do their best and maybe have fun and it's beautiful out there, but I blame it on spikes. Spikes. Yep. That's the answer. I mean, you don't wear spikes on the trail. Most of the time, the, the shoes that I run in on the trail are the shoes that I train in. So it's yeah. maybe, maybe that's a mental aspect of it, but I would say that one other difference I like to describe it as is, is track and road running, which is great in its own right. We both came up doing that obviously. So, um, all three of us, but like, I feel like the track and the road is very results oriented and the trail is very experience oriented. And those are very key differences because when you're living in experience, and the end result matters, but it's only part of the equation. I just feel like it makes, I don't know, it's, it's just like such a different energy with the sport. I assume that you're not going to go back most likely to the track of the roads. That's true. Um, I typically, I'll run like one to two road races a year. Last year I did 15K champs. Um, and it's mostly just to get a little bit of speed under my belt after, during the winter, I just end up training more road than trail just because of the nature of weather and everything um mm -hmm. so i don't know i i don't ever plan on doing it super competitively especially on the track um yeah the numbers thing is just not something that i really care about anymore um yeah unless it's an fkt unless it's an FKT, <laughs> then numbers matter then numbers matter but there's no there's no splits as you're running an fkt which is super fun it's like you just give it your all in the moment and if it's there, it's there. And if it's not, it's not. And you go back another day and try it again. But um, the end result matters in trail, but it's not like you're like, oh my gosh, I'm at 400 meters. What is my split? And so that's kind of nice. It's a little bit freeing. I agree. We should probably introduce, we should probably introduce who we're talking to, shouldn't we, Bracken? <laughs> yeah. They read the title. They read the title. It's Bailey Kowalsik, right? Am I saying that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and Bailey now, so we actually interviewed Bailey's boyfriend, Johnny, Luna Lima. Not sure if you've heard of him. And then we realized what a stud his girlfriend was, Bailey. And and so we realized like you have a lot to bring to the table. And your story is a little uh, interesting because you have the road and track background, but you recently came to the trail scene and you've like really, um, I don't know, like pretty made a pretty big footprint already in a short amount of time, I would say. And so that's why we're here talking to you today. In case the people don't know, because a lot of people are familiar with our OCR, like round table of names, but you haven't run anything OCR, I don't believe. So... Um, just thought I should introduce you quick that way. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm super happy to be here. <laughs> well, you, you brought up something interesting, which is times. If I look at times, I would not have predicted that you would adapt to the trails and the long trails as well as you have. You ran very respectable 800 meter and 1500 meter times, like 440s in the 1500 meters, I believe. Um, but your cross country times, to me on paper, not knowing you, said this girl's better at short distance than she is at off-road rolling terrain yeah and so if i were if i was a talent scout for a pro team i'd say eh, she's not going to translate well because she gets worse as the distance and as she gets off track and i'd look for someone else who is stronger at a cross-country race than on the track and yet 
you have completely shown that I'm a terrible scout of talent because <laughs> you have outperformed your track credentials on the trails almost immediately. Mm -hmm. yeah, Why is that, do you think? Um, it's really interesting. I think a lot of it was probably mental in high school and college, honestly. I think I told myself I was a middle distance runner, so I focused exclusively on middle distance. Um, during cross country, it was kind of base building season. I was like, well, this isn't my thing, so I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to tempo my way through it. And I never really tested the boundaries of how far I could go and, and what distance was um, kind of suited to me. Um, if you had told me three years ago that I would be running longer than an hour for my long runs, I would have never believed you. And now now my races are three to five hours. So it's it's just really interesting. And I think um, I think a big piece of that is definitely kind of mentally capping myself and, and putting myself into this box in high school and college. I am a middle distance runner. This is what I do. I'm fast. I was obviously having some success in high school and college, but um, I never really explored anything longer because a 3K was long to me. That was distance. That was, <laughs> that was mm -hmm. too much. Um, and then just once I came to Boulder and started training here with Andy Wacker, actually, um, he pushed the boundaries a little bit. He had me get on the track for a 5K, which was not super successful, but it gave me a taste of like, I can handle these longer distances and um, I'm actually quite good at them. And I would run long runs with some pretty respectable road runners. They would be thrashed at the end and I would be ready to go for another 15 miles. So I think that I just started to, it started to wake me up to where that potential was and, and kind of testing out the limit. That's the thing about talent, right? Is that more important than talent is our belief of where our talent lies. Right, right. And that's interesting that you had this endurance monster in you that you didn't know about. I know it's super interesting. And, and my parents have been pretty shocked too, because they're like, <laughs> we, we thought you were a middle distance runner your whole life. We spent a lot of time in the mountains growing up. So they always thought that, um, they were like, you should test out some of the the cross country races and stuff. And, and it's just where I put a cap, like mountains were separate than running. Like I never thought of combining them. And once I did, it was like this huge shock to everyone, um, including myself. And it's been, been really exciting. I feel like I'm still learning. Like, I feel like there's still, there's still untapped distances to try and, and races and, um, just different things. You didn't have any, um, any inkling in your middle distance years that you could hang with the the long distance drivers? You never had like a little snapshot and were like, nah, that's not for me. This was completely left field post-collegiately for you. Um, I'm not, I mean, on long runs, like my recovery was always more impressive on long runs. Like I, I think my, my long runs were always more impressive than my shorter workouts, which should have been like a spark, but it never mm. really seemed to, um, I just don't think I paid attention to it. I didn't acknowledge it enough. Um, and especially with trails, like we didn't really have trails where I trained in Clemson in South Carolina. So I never really got the chance to explore that at all. Um, so the, the whole trail thing came out of left field, which I, yeah, it's been, it's been super interesting. It's been kind of a whirlwind of a year, but. I feel like it is kind of the common um, trajectory if you come from a running background, we don't necessarily start running on the trails. We start running on the roads and the track in middle school and high school and mm -hmm. cross country pseudo counts, but doesn't really depending on where you live. And then eventually some of us find the trails and some of us get stuck on the roads. And so I think it's like a common, I don't know, progression of sport for people who end up in the trail world. And so like, I kind of want to dive into like that whole trajectory for you starting from the beginning. 
Um, you mentioned that you were in the mountains with your parents and stuff when you were younger. Did you grow up in the mountains or did you grow up on the flats like Bracken and I? Yeah. So I grew up in upstate New York, um, around Saratoga area. So we were, we were about an hour from Lake Placid, the Adirondacks. So I did spend a ton of time in the mountains growing up. Um, I had access to the flats obviously for running, but we, my family definitely is more mountain and flatland. So you grew up all the way through high school and your all of your young adult or childhood was in New York near the Adirondacks. Yes. Yep. Okay. And you ran, I assume you ran track and cross country in high school. Did you play any other sports? Yeah, I ran, I played soccer until ninth grade and then I um, switched over to the dark side of cross country and running three seasons. Um, so I ran four years um, across like four years, three, all three. Why, why did you switch? Um, the main reason was, so in seventh and eighth grade, I was on the varsity track team. And so I think there was some peer pressure involved, um, just being around the same athletes for, for two seasons in a row, indoor and outdoor, both years. Um, they were like, you should try cross country. You'd be really good at it. Um, and I really wanted to, to spend all year with them. So it was, I see a hand, but it was, (laughs) it was, um, Yeah, that was my that was my main driving force was just to be on the same team year round and not have to miss out on that during the fall season. When you say you ran varsity seventh and eighth grade, were you at the high school varsity while still in middle school? Yes. Yeah. Was that a small school or were you a prodigy? Um, It was there were only two of us that did that. So it was a pretty big school. It's impressive. You hear about that from time to time, but I think it's. It's, it's like a flip of the coin. Some people get really good early and they flame out and other people that springboards them to that next level of thinking. Mm-hmm. I think, and I think mine was kind of multi, I think I, I had a little bit of both. Like there was definitely some springboarding, but at the same time, most of my best times were run in like ninth grade, unfortunately. So I feel like there was a little bit of a plateau that was super frustrating throughout high school. Um, it was like, prodigy to like solidly top five in the area but um never like stand out as a junior Mm. we should talk about that for a second because i know a handful of girls on my high school team who in eighth and ninth grade were faster than i was and i was a good distance runner by all means and then as they got older they stayed the same or slowly you know they developed and then they became slower um how do you how do you like as a woman that goes through a girl at the time that goes through that, like, how do you stick with a sport when like it, you're not on the trajectory that you thought you might be? Because it's very common. I assume you grew a bit during that time, right? Is that what happened? Yeah. 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 And you were still like, oh, I was faster last year, but I still love this and believe I can get better. Or like what causes you to stay with a sport when it doesn't seem to be progressing at the time? Yeah. Um, it's interesting. So I, I actually, after 10th grade, I ended up transferring schools, mostly for running. Um, there was a better school in the area that the coach kind of recruited me. Um, so I ended up going there and, and I thought that would kind of be the change that I needed the coaching. Um, so I was, I feel like I was trying to control external variables at the time. Um, and you know, it got really frustrating. It there were definitely times when I was like, why am I doing this? But for me, I had this end goal of running NCAA. So Um, I think that's what kind of drove me knowing that I was still good enough to get scouted by schools um, and to be able to talk to these coaches. And and that kind of lit the spark to at least get myself to the college level. I was like, okay, well, after senior year, I'll take this break. And then maybe that's all I need to come back and get that back. 
Um, but it was definitely frustrating. And looking back, it's like, I feel like it was more physiological than I acknowledged it. We talked with Carrie Tollefson about this very issue and she's pretty passionate about it. And Kirk and I feel strongly about this, that getting through that is seen as an uphill battle or not winnable in a lot of circles, but that the girls who transition into becoming strong woman runners are the ones that had support through it. Like this isn't, this isn't your new you, this is just growing pains. And then you're going to have your forever body. And now you're going to learn to use that. And then you're going to come back around to that. For her, it was her mom and her dad. They were super supportive. And they just said like, this is temporary. Yeah. You'll have a few years of it, but you'll get through it. Did you have coaching or parents that helped you stay that? Or was it just your... I'm running NCAA no matter what. Um, yeah, I feel like it was mostly internal, honestly. I mean, my parents have always been super, super supportive. Um, but I feel like we're also a bit of a emotionally closed off family. <laughs> and if they listen to that, they might not be super stoked on my language. But um, <laughs> like we never really talked about those nitty gritty details. So I feel like all of the processing was definitely internal. Um and I mean, it seemed to get me through it. It really helped get me to the college level. Um, but of course, then that's a whole nother story. So, yeah. I think it's, I think it's a testament to, I don't know, like tenacity, like as a, as a young boy athlete and Bracken, you can attest to this. I was a late bloomer. You were a late bloomer. I believe, I think I was five, seven, 105 pounds my freshman year of high school. Oh, wow. Like we, we knew our trajectory and it was one direction. And no matter what we did, we grew into our bodies and it, it assisted us. And so it's easy because momentum fuels momentum, right? But like, if you start out that fast and that effective, I just feel like if that was me and I felt like I sat in the same place for years at a time in which this stuff really, really matters, it defines you as like a young adult, that's a tough deal. So like, I feel like there's got to be love and there's got to be passion underneath it all to just sustain. Like how many, for, for point of reference, because you're not the only one, you're one of many who experienced this. Um, as far as like not improving a ton during a certain point of like development, mm -hmm. like how long did you roughly hover around the same performance grade? How many years? Um, I would say it had to have been three years at least. Um, I'd say it was probably 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade. And then in college, um, I made some breakthroughs, but then things spiraled out of control pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd say probably three years before I was able to like feel like I was actually gaining fitness and, and um, developing as an athlete, which is super frustrating. And, and in those three years, I'd say that my mental game was probably like I was the most anxious and the most um, just hard on myself during the, that time. It was like race after race. I think I was getting to the starting line and, and the race was already written off at that point because I, I really... I had no faith in myself, um, which is just incredibly frustrating. Three years is a long time to go without a, a mental win. Yeah, yeah. Bracken, what would you have done if you if you were sort of stagnated for three years at that stage of your development? I think I would have went back to soccer. I'd have been like, screw it. <laughs> I've spent the last three years stagnated in my stage of development, and I my killer instinct went down the toilet. It was gone. Like It took surgeries to snap me out of it. So... Yeah. And that's as an adult who has some life experience mm -hmm. as 13, 14 or 15, 16, 17. I know I, I wasn't prepared to, to handle that. And it's honestly the reason that we lose the vast majority of our promising young female runners is because what's what's the end 
goal if you don't have someone who's explained to you like, hey, this is this is the roadmap. You're going to hit a couple of years where it's going to be rough, but don't worry. Like this is waiting if you get there. And we don't have enough. Honestly, the most, most coaches in high school are male mm-hmm. and about more than half of them never ran and never had a female runner who showed them what happens. And so, yeah, you just lose too many women before they even become what they should become. Yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more. I think um, I grew up having male coaches. I've actually never had a female coach to this date, but um, yeah, in high school, I think, I think a big thing for high school females in particular is just knowing that that's going to happen. And if it doesn't great, but there's a lot of, this is, that's also the time when a lot of girls will manipulate their bodies thinking that that's, that's the answer. And that's the way that they're going to get to their goal. And that's just another fast track to burnout and and a really um, unhealthy relationship with the sport, which just, it's just horrible to see. Yeah. It's super common. And it's also a logical connection to make. Mm -hmm. It's that I looked like this and I ran X time. And now the only thing that's changed is I don't look like that. And so, like you said, I'm going to manipulate the variables until I look like that again, so that my times get back on track. And to a young developing mind, that is a logical step to take. And it needs people around, like you said, that are going to tell you, this is how you progress. Right, right. Like this body will serve you. But right now it just, you know, you have to go through those growing pains to get there. And they do it for guys, right? They say, when you go through puberty, you're going to lengthen out, you're going to be awkward and gangly, and then you're going to fill out your frame. And then you're going to be a man and you're going to be stronger and faster than you've ever been. And so we all expect like the day I wake up and I can't dribble a basketball anymore. It's not that I'm done. It's just that my body betrayed me for a little bit. And then I'm going to catch back up. Like every guy grows up knowing that. And it's like a rite of passage. You're going to get awkward and then you're going to be a man. There's a disconnect there that doesn't happen on the opposite side. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the, I almost feel like the brain acts as a barrier for females because sometimes I don't know if it takes a little bit longer or if it's just that there's not enough dialogue around it, especially in the coaching world. Um, I I think it's more that one um, that there's just not, there's too many male coaches that just aren't super informed Mm -hmm. on that. Well, and you probably don't see it until, you know, hindsight's, you know, a beautiful thing, but also in the moment when you're living it, you always expect that next breakthrough. You're always like, well, yeah, I'm going to run better. I'm going to do this. And then you look back three years later and you're like, shit, I've run the same times. So you're always always on the cusp. Well, I would say if you're an internal optimist, or at least you hope to see the fruits of your labor, you wouldn't expect it. So like, it's, it's a tricky thing because the waters are muddy when you're in them and then you can look back. So like, that's a tough conversation to have where it's obvious if there's a dude who's six foot tall and 120 pounds and he's gangly and long, you'd be like, just give it time. Testosterone will do its thing. Right. Whereas like for women, it doesn't quite work the same. I want to know. So we, we talk about um, like the stagnancy you stuck with it. Obviously you were very high end. So let's not discredit this, right? Like, like how accomplished were you in your younger years in high school? Like, obviously if you didn't get much better after 10th grade, you were pretty damn fast to still do what you did. So like, where were you at, like on the state level or performance level? Like if you want to talk times or anything, like where were you at then? Um, so I was, the cool thing about the school that I had transferred to is that there were a lot more high level runners. Um, so I was able to be on some pretty competitive relays for um, like nationals. Like we would, we would qualify for nationals. We would make it to States. Um, I, I'm trying to think. I don't remember exact PRs from every year of high school. 
I used to have it all in my memory bank, mm. but I've kind of deleted it a little bit. But That's right. um, I was like sub three for the 1K um, in ninth grade and then just kind of held on to that. So my goal was always like get closer to 250 and that just never really happened. Um, so this is for indoor. Um, and we had a really good DMR team. So I was the 1200 meter runner. And that's kind of where a lot of our success was. That's where um, we won a state title and we were all American. So we got third at nationals. Um, and so it's definitely like I had success and, and that's what was exciting. Um, but I felt like most of the success was either in a relay or during training or, um, or it was just success that wasn't a super big improvement from when I was um, younger. So it was like, okay, this time is good. And I, I respect that, but I, I wanted better. Um, so yeah, yeah. Makes sense. We weren't able to run the DMR or the 1K in high school. That wasn't even an option for us. Was it for you, Bracken? Really? No. And I'll say this, to date, the DMR is my favorite race. And the 1200 was my favorite race distance I ever ran. But it was the first time I noticed there was some weird disconnect in my racing killer mentality, where in an individual race, I would race and do the minimal I had to do in order to cross the finish line without blowing up. And in a relay, I would die if need be to get the baton to the next person as fast as possible. It was almost as if the relay took away my own personal excuse. It's like, well, it's not about me. Who cares if I blow up? I'm going out hard. But I could not do that in an individual race. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a different, men I feel like there's a different mentality and a different kind of pressure in relays. Like I didn't feel like I put nearly the amount of pressure on myself in relays, um, but mm. I would send it way harder because it's like, I'm, I'm doing it for other people. And for me, that's kind of mm. what drives me is, is like a internal people pleaser. So the relay was um, always like a little less weight, but a lot more fun. Mm -hmm. We all ran the 1200. That was mine in the DMR in college too, Bracken. Yeah. 1200 is the best. It, it's, you know, and it hurts like a mother because it feels a lot like the eight more than the 15, in my opinion. Yeah, <laughs> it's just extended. Yeah. Uh, did you, how close did you come to breaking three, Bracken? Uh, I ran 302. Damn it. Same time. It was a tactical 302. I came through at uh, 203 or t and then closed. Oh, damn. Mm. I came in in 204 and closed in 302. Same thing. It was one of those things. My 800 yeah. and my 1500 were worse than my 1200. And I run the 1200, what, twice a year? It's yeah, just, it's interesting. It's it's a different mentality. It's a different game. It's um, yeah. I find it more fun. Relays free you to attack. Yeah. So let's talk about then. So we got out of high school and you got recruited to go to college and, and run. Yes. Yeah. Where did you go? I went to Clemson University in South Carolina. Um, most most people have heard of it if they're football fans, but if not, then mm -hmm. it can't really help you there. So what'd you do there? Um, I went there for mostly middle distance, um, but part of their thing was that every single uh, middle distance and distance runner had to run cross country. Um, so that was probably, that was one of my first tastes of like realizing that um, my my endurance was better than I thought it was, but I still didn't listen to that. Um, so I ran a lot more DMRs in college and, um, got a little bit of a taste of cross country. My sophomore year, I made it onto like the top seven of the team, which was a big win for me. Um, but I didn't do much in the individual track world in college. I didn't, um, one, I, I only ran there for two years. So, um, there wasn't 
I don't feel like I, I had that time to really sprout. And then two, they really depended on me more for relays because um, that just seemed to be where my mentality and my strength met better. Did you go to any big relay meets? Um, we, we went to a lot in the South. We went to a, um, I went to more big relay meets in high school. Honestly, we went to pen relays a lot in high school, mm. whereas in college I was injured my first outdoor season of college. And so my team went to pen relays, but I wasn't there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I had a really rocky college experience. So kind of got gypped on the, on the cool relay meets. <laughs> we, we should talk about that. You said you, you only ran two years which I'm going to say right now, I don't know the story. I'm hoping to get there, but um, to only run two years, you don't see a lot of people that run two years in college and then go on to pursue like high level racing afterwards. Usually you see the people who run for two years in college and then, you know, never see a pair of running shoes again. So your story is different. Exactly. So why'd you only run, why'd you only run two, two years? Yeah. So kind of going back to what I had mentioned in the high school experience, what happens to girls in high school, that kind of happened to me late. Um, in college, I had some, there were some pretty toxic influences um, as far as coaching and um, just the team atmosphere. And, and it was a pretty cutthroat, not super healthy environment. Um, and I feel like I had the perfect storm of personality traits mixed with what was going on externally to um, fall into a really bad eating disorder. Um, and that, that was like, it, it was a, it just completely skyrocketed things downhill. Um, this was happening. This was mostly my sophomore year. So between like September and February, things just got derailed so quickly that um, I was medically removed from school in February and forced to leave um, during my sophomore year. So not even two years, um, which I feel like, honestly, that's kind of a driving force for why I'm right now. Cause it's like, what you said, most people that leave and stop running their sophomore year of college don't ever go back to it. And um, it means so much more to me now that I can do it again healthy. Bracken, what do you what do you make of this? Like like this, I'm so I'm so sick of hearing this in the sense that like I'm so frustrated in us as like a like a culture that that this happens, right? Like this is just unacceptable. It's it's no fault of yours. It's a byproduct of pressure in society and the culture of the sport. Like how, how does this keep freaking happening? Like what, if you have to look back now, like what, why, like, why does this happen so damn much? It's just so ridiculous. Where is it? Where does this stem from? Do you yeah. think in the collegiate running? I think a big thing that I've um, been kind of interested in is just the, the NCAA coaching um, and, and just the style of coaching and the incentives for the coaches. Um, they're, because my program was not the only program that this was happening. And I know I've heard basically my own story way too many times to count. And it's getting, and it's almost like the older I get, the more I hear um, athletes around me dealing with this. So it's been incredibly frustrating to see that. I think um, that, well, one, there's a lot of male coaches in the NCAA and, and I'm not knocking on male coaches in general. I have a male coach right now and he's wonderful, but um there are a lot of male coaches that really just don't understand how to, they don't understand that there's a difference between male athletes and female athletes in the way that they train, in their needs, in the dialogue. Um, and so I think that's a big thing 
Um, I also think that there, there is a weight that needs to be put on the athletes themselves and just recognizing that, um, thinner doesn't always mean faster and that losing your period does not mean that that's a success story. Um, because that was a big thing in my school. It was like, if it was a badge of honor, if you didn't have your period. And, and if you did, you were the overweight, slow person that, um, was kind of abnormal. So it's, it's really interesting. I feel like there's, there's some dialogue that really needs to shift. And Johnny and I have talked about it in um, great detail, just kind of what could possibly change in the future that would help reduce um, this. And one thing that, that we were thinking is um, instead of incentivizing direct results during NCAA for the coaches, um, possibly giving them bonuses for having more professional athletes. So the amount of runners that you have running after college. Um, Thank you. Yeah. If you look at these programs, my, my own, my Clemson team, we have two people still running um, professionally post-collegiately and, and I wasn't even one of the best on the team. So it's, it's just interesting that some of these really good runners are just burning out and giving up on the sport because it it just created such a toxic um, relationship with themselves. You couldn't be more accurate. If you look at MBA programs, they don't brag about their GPAs. They brag about placement into the industry. Right. If you look at medical programs, it's not like, hey, we had 38 people at 4.0 last semester. No, we placed 38 people into active rotations Mm -hmm. on hospital floors. Why? the sporting world gets treated like it's not academia is beyond me. And I think that you nailed it. It's about how we transition them to post-collegiate life. That is all that matters. And football gets it. It's funny that we as runners would (laughs) acknowledge football because there's that eternal battle between runners and football players, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of mentality and, and, you know, the, the high school dynamics, but football now they recruit based off, we can get you to the NFL right. basketball. We can get you to the league running. It's we can get you all American, right? We can get you good results in the NCAA. It's okay. Yeah. And okay. So you are the, probably the fourth woman we've had on that has had the direct link of their running now because of an eating disorder in their past. Mm-hmm. And they've had positive ability to get through it. But you are the second person in the last probably six months that we've talked to who actually was medically removed from college. And that's not something that Kirk or I heard of one single time throughout our college career. We'd hear about people leaving, but it was never talked about why. And it's crazy that this happens all the time. And one of them said that her inciting factor to starting her disorder was she went to the Olympic trials when she was injured and she watched the Olympic trials and her goal was still to run at Olympic trials. And she realized every girl there, all the pros that are there, I don't look like them. And then, they, you know, and that, that's how it is. The upperclassmen run the dynamics of the team and then you emulate them. But one big piece that I mean, we all like to like talk, toss around like, what, what do you think's happening with doping here and doping there? And that gets thrown around a lot. But what some people forget is that you talked about the losing your period piece. That's not a badge of honor. It's something that people mitigate with chemicals. Mm-hmm. Like when you look at every world champion who has not had a period in 13 years, it's not that's why she's good. It's because she has to take a cocktail of drugs to keep herself healthy and alive. 
And that's why she's the world champion. And so we get the poor man's version of that. Well, we can't do that or we're not willing to take drugs, but we can get rid of our period. We're forgetting the second half, which is that is a fight or flight for your body. That's a survival procedure that your body enacts Mm -hmm. when it is severely suffering. So without that giant medical cocktail, it's not an effective means. Right, right. And it's not effective at all. And it's interesting because I, it, it took me um, probably five or six years to really recognize like, oh my God, that's something that I need if I actually want to be running in the future. And even when I was running um, like as a healthy individual, like I still didn't get that back. And I, I ended up with, with some really gnarly injuries because of it. And it's just... Um, it can be that delayed reaction. So yeah, you can get your mind in the right track and, and everything, but that, mm-hmm. that physiological piece, like once that's, once that's enacted, there's bound to be things down the road that are, that are going to happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you go back to that, the college culture, was this something that was spoken about? Like one of the girls would be like, I'm oh, Bailey looking a little thick today. Or like the coach would be like, you'd run a lot faster if you were 10 pounds. So I'm suggesting that you were 10 pounds lighter or was it unspoken? And it was like this sort of heavy air in the room. Like, was this, how did it, how does it be created is what I'm, I'm wondering. Yeah. Yeah. So my freshman year, it felt like it was more of an unspoken thing. Like the, there were definitely some unhealthy girls on the team that, that created this culture. Um, so I think that was a little bit more unspoken. Um, but mm. then my sophomore year, we um, the coaches were pretty upfront. So between freshman and sophomore year, I had gone home and and I really uh, wanted to get strong and get fast. And I did a lot of lifting and I did a ton of running and and I felt like I came back super fit. And their response to me was that I would be a faster runner if I was thirty pounds lighter. Um, and at that point, I was about. 125 pounds. So that's not, that's not abnormal for somebody (laughs) like that was my healthy weight. And, um, I was told 30 pounds lighter would make me faster, um, would make me stronger, would make me one of the best on the team would make me get closer to being an all American. Um, and 30, 30, 30. I mean, I can't get past 30 to tell somebody who's already fit 30 pounds, not like Bailey, maybe we just lighten up the lifting a little, lose a little bit of the muscle mass. It wasn't like baby steps. It was like 30 was the goat. 30 was the number I was given. Um, And, and I, I kind of laughed it off in the moment because I was like, that's the most absurd thing I've ever heard. I mean, I have um, a knowledge of physiology. I was a biology major in college. Like I knew, I knew in my rational mind that that was just absurd. Um, And, but you know, there's always the emotional mind and the piece that's like, I trust these coaches and, and I really, really want to be better. And I didn't put my heart into losing 30 pounds. Like that was not my goal. Um, but I put my heart into losing weight in general. And then it just grabbed a hold of my mind and came this quest to lose as much weight as possible. And it, you know, it ended up being more than 30. And then the coaches were of course disappointed in me, which is like, this is what you asked for. So you know, it's, oh. it's really frustrating. It's just this mind game that, yeah, yeah. So it was it was spoken by the coaches, but I would like this guy's name and address. I'm gonna go give him a bloody nose. Yeah, yeah. That's um, right. It's funny because my dad, my dad is like very, very passionate in in a really negative way about this 
man. Um, you're, you're getting me there, Bailey. So yeah. me and your dad are going to take team this asshole. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because he's like, every time I have a successful race on the trail, my dad's like, I'm going to Clemson. I'm going there right now. I'm going to have a conversation with him. I'm going to prove him wrong. I'm like, you know, I don't uh, know. My, in my mind, I'm like, I, I'd rather just enjoy the success and forget about him. And um, the thing that kills me is that he's still a coach. And the year I left, he was – he was ranked one of the best NCAA coaches in the in the sport, which is like, yay, his results are great. But um, well, not anymore. They axed their program, right? Um, just the men's program, unfortunately. So <laughs> great. There's, there's still a female program, but well, think about the selfishness of the request. Let's just put aside the danger and the foolishness. Let's just look at it from a selfishness standpoint. There are times where it could be considered worth it to take a crazy chance. Like mm -hmm. if you're talking between silver or bronze medal or gold or fourth place at the Olympics right. or on a world right. stage, like we might try something crazy because this is life-changing money that's waiting or whatever. Like maybe you could justify it, but if his response was ju the justification and then you could maybe be one of the best people on the team. Right. That just says, I'll do whatever it takes for my team to look good. He didn't even have a carrot to dangle in front of you that was worth your risk. Right, right. Yeah, and it's like, okay, well, great. I'm the queen of Clemson, but where does that get me? You know, it's like right. it's very interesting that that's... It gets him somewhere, but it does nothing for you. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's a very interesting mentality. There were there were definitely a lot of um, unhealthy conversations and, and unhealthy dialogue that happened there. Um, and I, I really don't have great things to say about that coach at all. Um, and that's fine. That's totally fine. Anyone can Google him and figure out who he is. I really don't mind speaking badly about him, but, um, and that's usually not my go-to, but, but I, I think that it's about time that some of these NCAA coaches get recognized for not their results, but their results as far as injuries and illnesses and um, burnouts. I think that that's, that's a statistic that should be recognized as well. Do you think things are getting better? because it, it has been come to light a little bit more in recent years. At least some coaches have been called out publicly and people have stepped forward, some high level athletes about unhealthy programs. Have you, I know you're not in that world anymore. Obviously you've moved past, but um, as far as like the collegiate running scene, but right. um, is, is that gotten better? Is it heading the right direction? Is anything like tangible has being done right now or not really? I think that the dialogue has gotten better. I think that the general dialogue is improving. Um, there's there's more people that are aware of the issue, which is the first step in in my mind. I don't know statistically if there's actually been change yet, um, because I do. I still um, I have a younger sister, and she has a lot of friends that are running in college right now, and so I do see the same things time after time and the same um, kind of trends, but. Um, I've also noticed that a lot more people are aware and a lot more people are coming forward. Like a lot of recently post-collegiate, um, athletes and saying things on social media, which I really think can help the younger generation and can make them more aware. So, um, I think we're moving in the right direction, but I don't know if it's tangible yet. I, I still see so many unhealthy things that it's hard to know exactly whether it's, um, whether the needle is actually our last episode we did was about bad coaching. And at the end of it, I said, having ranted, I don't feel any better mm -hmm. because nothing's promised that it'll be changed. But in this venue, I think change is around the horizon right. because 
running is one of the more archaic sports in terms of the way it's looked upon. And there's been a revolution in NFL, NBA, MLB of young, successful athletes coming back and taking front office roles or coaching duties. And I believe that that is imminent in our sport, which is really the only way to change this. I, we, Kirk and I both talked that being a good athlete doesn't make you a good coach. Right. But right. having experienced these negatives makes you someone who will be vested in not letting others experience the same thing. And I think that's like the dialogue's great. But I think the the coaching turnover, when, when universities start embracing bringing in either alma maters or athletes from somewhere else with an agenda of, I can coach as well or better than your coach coached, but I can connect with humans and make better people than you've ever made. That That's when this, this change happens. And I believe it's imminent. I really do. Yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more. I, um, I actually started coaching myself, um, not, not coaching myself, but I actually started coaching at trail athletes and, um, a few OCR athletes actually. And, uh, mostly because I wanted to be able to give people what I wasn't given throughout all of my coaching experiences. And I, and I feel like it's people with those stories and people with those backgrounds that need to move into NCAA. Um, I mean, that's not really where, um, I see my future. So unfortunately, that's not the the plan for me. But I, I definitely agree with you. And I think if there's more people that have these stories and that have these experiences, then then those are going to be the good coaches, the people that can really make the change. Yeah. So let's let's talk then your transition. So um, so obviously uh, you had a rough patch. We will call it right. Yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, we, um, well, how long did that last? And then walk me through sort of, as Amelia Boone, I believe had mentioned, I know you guys are friends and yeah. I respect her a lot. And we had a great interview and talk about this uh, a few months ago. So it's something you never beat. It's something you live with, but you kind of push that gopher back in its hole constantly. At right. least that was, I believe the take she had had. So I know it's never like, have you really ever beaten anything? No, but you keep it at bay. But what I'm asking is when did you finally come out the other side and start being able to, um, embrace maybe like the sport again? How did that all happen? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I left sophomore year. Um, basically I ended up transferring to university of Colorado Boulder. Um, I finished up school here and I really just dove headfirst into school. Um, I was a pre-med major. Um, I loved what I was doing in school. I was still running, but it was by no means competitive. Um, and that was about two years, two and a half years. So about the time it took to finish up school. Um, and none of that was really competitive. So it took two full years off of competitive running to really feel like I could re-enter that world in a healthy way. Um, and I started, I started by getting back into the road world, um, onto the track because that's all I knew. And I thought that that's, that's just a huge thing in Boulder. There's, um, there are a lot of road athletes. There are a lot of track athletes. So I thought that like, I'm just going to go back where I feel comfortable and I love the track. I think I love the track. And um, I never really scratched that itch. Like, I feel like I got stuck on the numbers. I probably wasn't fully healthy. I was definitely physically way healthier and in a way better place than I was when I was at Clemson. Um, but it became more of a job and I think I just still viewed it in a pretty toxic way. Um, and that was probably a year long. So that puts us at like very early 2019. Um, and then I, I started training with Andy Wacker and he's a trail road athlete. 
So base season involved some trail running, which was super scary. Um, but he, once I ran the trails, it was like, it was just this switch in my mind. It was crazy. Like I never thought that usually transitions, I feel like it's gradual. Like you kind of explore and then you go back to what you're comfortable with. But for me, it was like, I never went back. Like it was, it was just, I tried out some trail races and, um, had success and felt really good and felt super powerful. And, and the community was positive. Um, I met Johnny early June and, um, he's also a huge trail, um, athlete. So it kind of worked. Um, and it's just, I don't know. It felt like I was finally free, um, and free in the sense that, I felt like my relationship with running had shifted. It wasn't something that felt compulsive. I wasn't training to exercise. I was training to get better. I was training to be the best athlete that I could possibly be. And there's something super special about that um, because I feel like so many people don't realize that they're training as exercises or a means to burn calories. Um, and like now training is like, oh my gosh, I'm getting better. This is so exciting. I'm running fast. I'm running hard. Um, and so. Yeah, that kind of fueled the transition. I think that's why it was so fast and so dramatic because it was just so exciting and it felt like a completely different relationship with me. Immediate success? You know, it was pretty it was pretty immediate. Um we ran so we ran some tempos on trails and I learned what an FKT was through those tempos, which was super exciting. As in you got an FKT during a tempo? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there were a few there were a few runs where I was like, wow, I got another crown. This is so exciting. So um that was really exciting. And then I ran my first trail race, which was this smaller, it was just kind of a hill climb. Um and I won that, which was fun. It wasn't super, super competitive, but it was really it was just exciting to feel really successful and feel like my hard work was paying off and and I still loved the sport. I, I wasn't feeling like anything was compulsive or numbers based. Um, and then things just progressed from there. I ran a few more races. I ran Spartan trail championships um, and that went really well. And yeah. From the time that you first stepped on a trail to today, how long ago was that? I first stepped on a trail. It was okay. We're in time 2020 time went really weird. <laughs> like I feel like the whole year didn't happen. So I guess it was a, year and a half ago that I first stepped on <laughs> It was about, uh, I would say May of 2019. Okay. And we'll get to, and we'll get to this, but how many other people at the golden trail series do you think stepped foot on a trail for the first time, 18 months prior? How many do you think? Uh, I don't, you know, probably none because most of them I've heard of, and most of them I've known their stories. I talked to a few of the athletes and they were like, wait, this is your first trail race that's over like a half marathon? And I was like, yeah, I have no idea what I'm doing. This is so exciting. But um, yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting, kind of weird to wrap my head around. But that's not the normal story. You went from medically removed from college, pretty severely injured, it sounds like, yeah. to your mindset and passion returned and you're just poof, good, immediately. Like you, in your first year of trail running, superseded anything you ever did on the track in one year. Yeah. And that's, that's what's so shocking to me is that, um, like, yes, there have been mental ups and downs. Like I cannot deny the fact that like, I completely agree with Amelia. It's something that's always going to be there, but, um, running wise, it was crazy. It was like, I had never 
had these individual titles and I had never really had that. Um, it was just like breakthrough success that I had never felt before. And that's, um, that was super shocking, especially to happen in that first year. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't all, it wasn't all pretty and rainbows. I, I definitely, um, I ate it a few times and, and I got really injured one time during a race, but, um, it's part of the game. Let's talk injuries. Let's talk injuries. You mentioned injuries as you were leaving the track. And then you said you dealt with some severe injuries based off of, I don't know if it was anemia or whatever you had going along with um, the results of your eating disorder and your weight loss. But what did you experience throughout there and how long did it last even after you had turned the corner mentally? Yeah. Yeah. So really like the only big injury I had in college was just a, um, just, it was a foot fracture. Um, and that was like, that was my freshman year. Um, all of the, I'd say all of the significant injuries I had were after I started running again. So I was in a much healthier place, um, physically, but I think my body was still, still getting hit by, by the past. Um, so let's see the, I transitioned to trail, uh, like spring, summer of 2019. Um, that August I did run a road race. Um, but during my first big trail race, it was North American sky running championships. Um, it's like half of the pike pikes peak course. Mm -hmm. And, um, like three quarters of the way up, I felt this weird pain in my hip, but I kind of ignored it. I had no idea what it was. Um, but then on the way down, my leg kept giving out and I kept falling over and over and over and over again. But, um, really wanted to finish because I was second. I was in second. It was my first <laughs> race. And I was like, I need to finish. Like Johnny says, I'm a good downhill runner. So I need to catch up to the first girl. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I ended up, it was, ended up being a full fracture of my sacrum. Um, mm. and it like hit my SI, it hit my sciatic nerve, which was making my leg give out over and over again. And then, um, so that was my first big hit that was last August. So from August to November, I was out. Um, and that was kind of a, that was kind of a wake up. It was like, dang it, I'm having all of the success and I'm finally healthy. I'm feeling myself well. I feel really good. I love running again. And now this happens. So that was kind of a big hit. Um, but I came back from it. I ran Spartan Trail. I won um, the Spartan Trail National Championship thing last year. And um, that was super exciting because I was like, oh, I came back from the injury. Spartan Trail National Championship thing you won. That thing. <laughs> you know, well, I wasn't sure if you knew because it was the trail one, not the OCR. <laughs> oh, come on. We're running podcasts. Everyone thinks that I did the OCR one and they're like, so are you going to do Tahoe this year? I'm like, oh gosh, that's... You make it sound like a firecracker 5K. Oh, no. <laughs> no, this... Yeah, it was the um, National Championships last year. That was good. That was great. Good competition was there. Great competition was there. That's very impressive, Bailey. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I don't really like talking about, um, I don't know. I always feel awkward talking about super successful things. But it, um, yeah, then then this May, I had um, pain on the other side of my hip. And it ended up being a sacral fracture, again, on the other side. Um, so that was kind of that double whammy within one year, I had two sacral fractures. So, um, in that last year and a half that I was running trails, six months of it was spent injured. So I guess it was a year of trail running. All right, two, two things popped to my mind. Then. <laughs> the first is that this is bad news for people. Like what they saw at Spartan national trail and what they saw at, uh, the golden series championship event is not 
your ceiling. Mm-hmm. This, so you you are ascending and you're going to continue to, to ascend. And the second is that it seems like you build fitness freaky fast. Yeah. Yeah. Both injuries, I came back really quickly. So um, this last one, I, I started my return to run in August and then I ran the Skyline FKT in September. Um, and I think- <laughs> That <laughs> I wasn't think soft. A, no, I think a big piece of it is is the bike. I started biking um, because I was cleared to bike and I could do the same volume on the bike. I mean, obviously it's different neuromuscularly, but I felt like most of the return to run was just getting the kind of balance and stability back. Um, But I felt like my aerobic fitness didn't take a hit, which was kind of um, a blessing in disguise because my legs were super fresh, but um, my aerobic system was like on point. I always tell people like if you are coming back, cause I've been chronically injured. I just came off of five months. I had a stress fracture in my foot and I'm about two months back in my comeback. Um, but I tell, I don't, I don't like to throw myself a pity party because I believe like when you do poignant cross training work smart and safely, I can feel my fitness pop within weeks of coming back to running just from the neuromuscular adaptation and the biomechanical efficiency that I, I lost. I get that back and the engine's ready to go. And I just really like hearing you as proof because to go from not running for three months to go do an FKT like you accomplished to get yourself in a golden trail series would be unheard of. And so many people get lost in the weeds and they get injured and they let go of their fitness or they let off the gas pedal. And like, you're just proof that obviously uh, you can combat that. So this is very impressive. I'm glad you said that. Cause I think some people, there's always people listening that are injured. They need to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. It's um, I think it's really important because I think that there's, there's a mindset that comes with getting injured. And I, and just like, for me, I, I knew that I wanted to run the skyline FKT. That was a goal of mine. And I really didn't let that fade during the injury. So that was in the back of my mind the entire time it kept me motivated. And I think kind of having those goals um, are really important. Like I tried not to put a date on it because that can be super frustrating when you're injured. If you're like, this is the day I'm running it. Um, But to have to know that there was an end in sight and a goal to be accomplished like that that really pulled me through um a lot of the dark mornings on the bike train can we talk about just a second um about your cross training because i'm you piqued my interest in the sense that obviously you kept some high level fitness did you keep um like really purposeful systems work in on the bike and you almost approach it as if you were running in a sense where you you polarize your training and had a threshold days and interval days and climb days and all that or did you just get on and at least put time in um kind of a little of both so it was definitely structured like running like i had my workout days i had my like long run day which was just a really long bike um i tend to so boulder has a lot of canyons that you can climb up so i tend to bike more with the purpose of getting as much vert as possible, um, mostly because it's fun and you can grind a little bit more and um, cars are going a little less quickly. So it wasn't, there weren't as many like flat days as there were climb days. Um, now that I'm using Zwift, there's a lot of, there's a lot more uh, variability, but um, yeah, yeah. So there were definitely like, we had interval days. I had days that were like, uh, my coach wouldn't really call them tempos, but he'd call them like moderate hard day. So I'd just go and um, keep my, I'd pin my heart rate a little bit higher. 
for that day or go by a harder effort. Um, so it was definitely focused training. It wasn't just like I'm biking every single day and, and it's getting kind of boring. Like it was, I felt like I was still moving towards the goal. Um, still gaining fitness in a way that's just different. I didn't realize you were on, on a bike bike. I thought you were talking about spin. If you're able to gain vert on a bike, you come back ready to run mountains. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. Um, so yeah, the first month of the injury, um, well, the first month of the first injury, my knees were so wrecked from falling down the mountain that I couldn't really do much of it. Um, but the second injury, like I had to stay on a stationary bike because, um, just because of the instability of terrain. Um, but the, the, once I was in a place that I, that it was stable enough to be outside, then yeah, it was like two solid months of just, um, vert on the bike, which is, I enjoy actually. I didn't know I enjoyed it, but I- what I want to know Bailey then with like getting on the bike is you went from no running to a pretty long grueling FKT within months. And so something that I, you know, struggle, I'm struggling with, I think everybody coming back from injury, uh, my fitness is popping and it is coming back. And I'm going to make zero excuses when I come back to racing, because I'm going to show up as prepared as I can be. But you can't always take the govern off right away and you can't run as much as you want to. It's not like, oh, I'm cleared to run. Let's go hit a 20 miler in the mountains. It's like a very slow, painstaking process Mm -hmm. to get back and stay injury free. So my question for you is, how do you like, how do you navigate that to prepare for a long race when the comeback's slow? Um, yeah, it's interesting. First of all, my coach is a rock star. He's amazing. He's awesome. Who's your coach? I train with David Roche. Um, and so he, like the big thing was like the first run was literally probably five to 10 by one minute jog, one minute walk. So to me, that's like nothing aerobic. And I was like, oh my God, I'm never going to run normal at this point. Um, but we kept the bike volume in and like, as the running went up, the biking went down a little bit. And so it was kind of just layering out the biking and layering in the running. So the fitness is still there. Um, it's frustrating. Like the first few weeks are really frustrating. And I was like, I I remember, I vividly remember doing my first real workout and Johnny was John. I train a lot with Johnny, but he was running with me and I, I kind of had a freak out moment. I'm like, there's no way I'm ever going to be able to run skyline if I'm getting out of breath on this mound. Like there is no way that this is going to happen. So there were definitely moments like that, but I mean, clearly it happened. And um, you just have to be patient with it. I think patience is a virtue and, and I kind of just succumbed to the process. And, um, my main priority became don't get injured. That is the goal. So, um, as slow as the pr- uh, progression needed to be, that's what's going to happen. And, um, I progressed super slowly and, and my fitness was there when it needed to be. So, um, yeah, that was super exciting. I'm, I'm really grateful for everything that happened. Um, but yeah. I want to know, um, like, <clears throat> with this progression, for me, what I notice, and Bracken, maybe you can t- uh, testify to this too, is it seems like you're never going to get there. You said you had that run with Johnny. And then three weeks later, your fitness pops and you're almost running as fast as you ever have in your entire life. Have you experienced this coming back from injury the way you've done it? Because right now I'm cross-country skiing and running. I'm supplementing mm-hmm. with skiing and I'm doing a little bit of biking and other stuff. And two weeks ago, I went from like running a 17 minute 5k basically, which is not where I need to be clearly to like, now I think I can run 16 minutes, three minutes, three weeks later. I'm like, oh my God, it clicked. Yeah. I definitely feel like there's that random shift. And I don't know if it's like a day or a week thing, but, um, 
I vividly remember having that same kind of breakthrough. It's like, and I don't know, I physiologically, I don't know exactly what's going on, whether it's like a neuromuscular, like, whoa, things like understand what's happening. But um, I like for a while, it just felt like running was clunky and everything was wrong. And um, aerobically, like running up a hill was like the hardest thing in the entire world, even if it was a 30 second hill. Um, and then like two weeks later, I'm able to run like 14 or essentially um, up at high altitude. And so it's, it's interesting the way that your body just clicks into it. And it's like, Oh, I remember how to do this. I still have fitness. Um, so yeah, that's interesting. I, that definitely happened to me too, but I'm not entirely sure why. Bracken, when we talked about coming back from injury, remember it was like when we both did our first 5k time trials for baseline testing at post-injury, oh. it was like, we, we described it as fighting for every stride. It was like, I felt like my body didn't inherently know what to do. I had to fight for every stride, especially once we got fatigued. And I, I would say I credited a little bit to neuromuscular adaptation as much as physiological adaptation. I would have to mm -hmm. say that it's a combo of both. But Bracken, we just talked before Bailey got on. And what'd you say about your fitness right now? You said it's popping a little bit, didn't you? Uh, I'm trying not to get excited about it because I feel like I turned that corner where suddenly I'm not fighting to like, like you said, during that 5k time trial, we did it. What? 15 runs back. We did a 5k time trial to set a baseline. And every stride, I had to focus on my arms and legs oh. to make sure they were doing what they were supposed to be doing it, because it felt like I was controlling someone else, like a bad puppeteer, like mm. I was a marionette. And suddenly now I'm running, I'm like, oh, my stride feels fast and long and fluid. And also it's like, holy crap, my stride's doing it. I'm, I'm not running. thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, so I feel like this last week, sometime in the last six or seven days, I it like it just clicked. And I told Kirk before this, now I'm suddenly at that point where it's like, I think I'm going to win this next race. And, oh, and I know because it's just like honeymoon period with your body's back. And in about a month, it'll be like, all right, now I know exactly where I am. But it feels so good to be back that it's like, I'm the fastest person on earth. There's oh, no one that could yeah. ever feel this good and this fast running. No one's ever felt this good. <laughs> it's kind of like the, the you feel like you're invincible. And yeah. then a few weeks later, reality hits a little bit. Yep. Okay, let's go back and realize like what's actually happening. But yeah. um, there is that invincible period where it's like, oh my God, I'm going to win a world championship this year. Like this is happening. So yeah, yeah I can definitely relate. And I'm, I'm almost like craving that reality check because I know this isn't real. I, I just want to get it over. I want to fast forward to now I hit the wall and then I come through to the other side. I'm waiting for that other side. Right, right, right. Well, what happens is you go with it, right? Like you get those days and it finally clicks and you're like, yes. And you, and you embrace it and you go with it. Eventually that fatigue catches up with you and you're going to hit your, you're going to hit your wall. You're going to hit your like, oh shit, I need to dial the throttle back a little bit and let mm -hmm. this sink in. That always happens. It doesn't it. Um, I, I just wanted to hone on this because there's always people coming back from injury and there's always people thinking it's never going to happen. And I'm so out of shape and they feel very hopeless. And if you follow the process, you put in the time, you were cross training mixed with running. You were still keeping your volume up. It's like, it's not hopeless. It can come around literally in weeks. You can go from feeling like zero to somewhat, even if it's a false hero. So like good for people to hear. I just want people to hear that. Yeah. Trust the process. That's the biggest thing I've had. I coach a few athletes that came to me injured actually. And they were in this place where it was like, they were like, Oh my gosh, I have to take six weeks off of running. Like this is this is horrible. I'm not going to be able to race in six months. And it's like, they're just writing off their entire future because that's because it feels so horrible in the moment. But if you can 
kind of acknowledge that and get past it and keep working in a different way. It might not look the same as before, but um, it'll happen. It'll come together and, and you'll be invincible soon enough. Well, look at right here in this collection of people right here. Kirk, you just missed five months straight of running. Bailey, last year you missed six months of running. And this year I missed seven months straight of running. And we all felt utterly hopeless that I'll never undo what just happened to me. I'll never get it all back. All three of us are proving that. Are we currently world champions? No, but we're currently starting to run relatively quick. And we missed the greater part of a year of running. Like it does happen. It will come back. It takes way less time to regain it than it did to lose it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I um, I have two very major things I still want to talk to you about. One is related to injury here in this. Um, and that is... What do, what do you do? Uh, let's talk. Cause you're obviously going to be a cerebral athlete. I know Johnny's a cerebral athlete. You guys like are living together or dating. I, I trust you guys bounce these things off each other and he's had a passive injury as well. How are you going to prevent it from happening in the future? Like now that you're back and you're running and things are going relatively well, um, what do you, what do you do? What do you do to make sure that we keep this train rolling this time? Yeah. So there's a few, I mean, my big thing is like analyzing kind of what went wrong the last two times and seeing if there's any similarities and, and what I could have been doing that would contribute to it. Um, and I found a few things. So I've definitely tried to really focus on those. I would call them weaknesses, just things that I wasn't doing as well as I could have been doing. Um, like I think a big thing that I noticed was, well, going back to the middle distance running, my background is not in running these long distances. So to me, the idea of eating while you're running is the most absurd concept I've ever heard in my entire life. So the <laughs> I wasn't fueling during any long runs because I was like, well, I can make like, I, I have no problem running this distance without any fuel. And, um, and it was just a really foreign concept. Um, and now it's like, I make sure that every single run over an hour and a half, I'm taking in um, a certain amount of nutrition and really crushing that part of it because that's super important. And I think that that didn't contribute well to my recovery or um, anything that was going on physiologically. So that's that's been super important. Um, the other thing is just my transition from like the winter flat running to the trail instead of going from a run with like 200 feet of gain to a run with 7,000 feet of gain, maybe finding a happy medium somewhere in there and and taking a few weeks to do that transition might make the downhill um, blow to the body a little bit less because it seems to be when I transition quickly into big mountains, um, things go awry. So um, I'm testing some theories and and I'm confident that they'll work out. Do you, um, do you purposefully still place cross training on the bike in your program when you're healthy to fill volume? Yeah. Yeah. So I bike about four and a half hours a week. Um, and then, so I supplement it with my running right now. I'm running five days a week and biking three. So I have a few double days and then one day that's just running. I mean, just biking. Sorry. Yeah. The first complaint you hear from the running world, the track cross country world is that biking slows your cadence. Biking will detract from your running. A, do you believe it? And B, what are you doing to mitigate that? I don't really believe it. uh, Mostly because I've had a lot of success in starting biking. um, And 
my workouts on the road too. Like I, I have benchmarks that I feel like I'm, I'm getting better still. Like, I don't feel like the biking is making me slower. Um, there's definitely some times when like, if I bike hard the day before the next day, I feel kind of wonky, but that's why my program is set up so that I'm not biking the day before a big workout or something. Um, I think another important thing is keeping your cadence high on the bike. That can help a lot too. Um, that's something that I wasn't super aware about when I was, um, biking all the canyons last year, but now I've been doing a lot more stationary riding right now in the winter and, and keeping that cadence high definitely helps with, with the translation to turn over on the road in my mind. Um, I know that there's some people that, um, could probably throw some scientific articles that might prove otherwise, but for me, it's like, I'd rather be uninjured and stay fast. Um, and the bike doesn't seem to be hindering that at all. So I'd rather be injured than, than run myself into the ground again. I agree with you. And we're not in a sport where hundredths matter. Right. Exactly. I'm not in track, maybe in track. Like if I was running the 800, maybe if I was biking the amount that I do, it would take away from it. And I'm sure it would, but, um, to me, it's like, it almost helps me with climbing, um, in the running world. So it's like, why, why mess with it? I want to move to, your golden trail series bailey okay. because this is a really big freaking deal you have to be the least tenured trailer mountain runner to be at the race i would have to imagine i don't know the field as well as you do why don't you tell people we've touched on this before with johnny um but why don't you tell people like what you did i just read your recap on instagram before we started by the way and i will say that um your finishes were pretty dang impressive in a stage race at such a young I don't know, young tenure. So why don't you tell people about the golden trails uh, and how you qualified and all that? Yeah. Yeah. So it was interesting because, because of COVID um, cause golden trail series is usually a series of races throughout the summer. I think it's like four or five races throughout the summer. And then um, you, if you get top 10 in all the races or in three of the races, you qualify for the golden trail world championship. Well, this year, since all the races were canceled, they did um, they did a system where, they set up different FKT routes kind of around the entire world. Um, there were five in America. Um, so they set up different FKT routes. And then if you ran the fastest time between July and October, then you got an all-inclusive trip to go to the Golden Trail World Championship, which they set up as a um, four and a half day stage race this year, instead of having all the races, they just did them all at once. Um, and where was that? That was in Portugal, um, in the Azores Islands. And um, so luckily, one of the FKTs was in Boulder, which was super nice. Um, they had Solomon athletes set up every single one. So Courtney DeWalter had picked this one. And um, I had already had my sights set on it. It was the Boulder Skyline Traverse. It's, I believe it's 17 miles with seven with 6,000 feet of gain, something, something around there. Um, and... So I ran it. It was crazy because there were, I ran it as to like scout it as a um, kind of easy, moderate run early September. And I got the fastest time at that time because no one had really gone for it yet. And then a bunch of girls went for it and um, kind of exactly how I expected it to play out. And then I went back again at the end of the window. I, um, it kind of all came together super well. And um, I got the FKT, I think. I don't remember how much it was by maybe like five something like that it's pretty close but, in a in a distance of that that length I yeah would say. yeah it wasn't 
it wasn't anything where it was like a massive blowout or anything. Um, but it, I felt like it was a, everything came together. Well, it was super tactical and it felt really good. Um, and it was two days before the window had closed for it was all, it was all set up a little bit. Um, so that, so that nobody could go for it in the last few days, but, um, yeah. So then I got the golden ticket and you go, uh, to the Azores and they had, oh my gosh, it was probably the most competitive field I've ever seen in my entire life. There were so many really, really well-known European racers out there, um, that had gotten their own FKTs out in Europe. And, um, it was, so they, it was supposed to be a four day stage race and it ended up I say four and a half because they snuck in a little 5k time trial the first day that since with COVID you have to, they had to do the starting line um, in a way that everyone was six feet from each other. And they kind of set it up um, a little bit like the tour de France. So they were, they were trying to make it so that you had to earn your spot on the starting line. So that first time trial, I got sixth. And then, so I kind of made my way into the front of the pack, which was really nice place to start. Um, and then it was four days and it was, I don't remember the exact distance each day, but it was anywhere from 14 miles to, I think the last day was 22 miles, um, with anywhere from like 3000 to 6,000 feet of, um, vertical per day. And so obviously these are all new distances to me. The, the first race was the longest race I had ever run. Um, the second day was the longest race I had ever run. The third day was the longest. Like it, it just every single day was longer than I'd ever done. Um, and it was just a, such a good experience. Um, I really surprised myself with being able to hang with the top 10 um, the first two days. And then the third day, I took a wrong turn and ended up on the top of this volcano and had no idea where I was. But um, it was kind of fun. It was like really, it was a great learning experience, really good to get my in the international racing um definitely didn't expect that to happen this year with everything that's been going on um and yeah yeah it was just an overall win do you ever feel out of your league there was it a pinch me moment or were you like no this like i know what this feels like and i can do this there were some pinch me moments where i was like i don't think i can hit people like these people are so intense like i so obviously the goal eventually is to be top five and top five to 10 in that race scene. But um, given that I was so new to the trail world, it was, it was a little bit like, I feel like a noob, um, but I'm going to do my absolute best. And I know that I earned my way here. And so that kind of drove me through. It was like, it was more about having fun and, and gaining experience than it was about, I'm going to get top 10 this time because, you know, um, I can't, I, I just didn't feel like I could have those expectations. Um, this early in my career. And, and I really just wanted to see what I could do um, in a race so intensely long um, and so tactical. Mm. How was the recovery between races? Not afterwards, but between races between, because yeah. each race was longer than you've ever done. Did it destroy you? I thought like going into it, I really didn't think I could do it. I didn't have that much faith in my body. And I was like, well, you know what? I'll be happy if I can finish two out of the four days. Like that's a win in my mind. And my recovery was way better than I thought. I mean, it was by the fourth day, it was kind of like living in Groundhog Day, though. It was like, oh, we're doing this again. Like we're walking to the starting line. Um, and I was definitely sore every single morning, which I'm not usually sore at the start line. So it was kind of weird. Um, 
And especially on the third day, I was a little nervous. I was like, I have no power in my legs. Like, I don't know how I'm going to like drive up this hill. And the minute the gun went off, I forgot all about it. Like it felt like it was just another race and my legs felt like they were just as powerful as the day before. Um, I mean, I didn't look at like the nitty gritty details, but as far as like me versus the field, like I felt like I was in the same area um, around the same runners. So it definitely surprised me how fast my body bounced back between races. Um, yeah. Yeah. The fourth day got to me a little bit, but. What do you attribute that to? Why were you able to do that? Is that volume? I think volume consistency with training and then also nutrition between races. Like we were just few, I felt like I was fueling the entire time, which is great. Um, but it, I felt like it really helped recovery. Like nothing. Um, I just didn't feel super over fatigued going into any of the races. And, um, we put, I was, Johnny was there with me and we put a super strong emphasis on, um, just making sure we were getting enough food and protein to, to recover between, which is funny because in the past, you know, food has obviously been an issue, but food was the the highlight of this trip. I'd say how many athletes or how many women were there? Um, well the, so they did, I think it was like 50. I think it was 50. Okay. So 50, I'm leading you into this one, but 50 of the best women trail runners in the world. And why don't you walk people through your placement in the stages? Because it's very impressive. Yeah. So the, the first, so that first day I got six to get on the line. And then the first real day of racing was 10th. Um, the second day was 11th or 12th. Third day was 14th. And then the fourth day was absolutely terrible. I climbed up in fifth and I ended up in like 20 something. Um, cause I ended up walking down half of the thing, but, um, yeah, yeah. So I, I feel like in my mind, I proved to myself that I can ha hang with the, the top 10, especially in an isolated race. A lot of these runners were ultra runners. So they, I feel like they could handle the volume a little bit better. Um, but mm. it was, it was pretty shocking to me that I was, that I was consistently climbing top 10 and then um, just kind of learning the rest of the race, but yeah. If you, if you think about the facts, okay, you were three months removed from not running at all. You're 25 years old. These were the first, second, third, and then fourth in a row longest trail races you'd ever done. You started trail racing, trail running 18 months prior, and you were fighting for positions in the top 10 in one of the most prestigious trail races in the world. If I were other athletes, I would be scared out of my freaking mind right now. <laughs> That's what I think. It's very impressive, Bailey. I just want to pat you on the back for that. Very impressive. Thank you. Thank you. I, you know, it's definitely one of my proudest moments um, because not only was it like proof to myself that, that I can hang with these people, but it was also um, like, I never felt like I was a complete head case. Like I, I never doubted my abilities. I, I definitely was, I was a little nervous going into it because obviously it's a completely new stimulus. Um, but I never felt like that the overwhelming urge to just give in and give up. Um, and that's definitely, that's a lot. Since track, since high school, I've held the strong belief that you find out how tough someone is in event two. Event one, anyone can get up for and pop a race. Right. Event two or morning two you find out exactly where their headspace is at. And you had day three and day four, and technically day five to wake up and have to prove it all over again. And right. it, I don't know if you could have picked a really, like if you step back and look at this from the 20,000 foot view, there wasn't a better event for you to prove that you are not who you were. It was right. an event 
just predicated around things you've never done before and fueling. And you, you checked both boxes. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I I'd say it was a huge breakthrough. It was, um, kind of an F you to the eating disorder. Um, Mm -hmm. like this is what happens when you don't give in to that. Um, and then it was also a, like, just a, just a shocker to like, you don't need to check. You don't need to put yourself in the box of 800 meter runner. Like you can test other things and you're actually good at other things. And there's so many more opportunities out there that are way more fun. So let's bring it to current day then. So that's behind us now. That was a few months mm-hmm. ago, new year, hopefully some racing actually happening. What, uh, what's in Bailey's future? Yeah. Um, I'm really hoping that there's races. That's I, I'm really, really hoping. Um, my goal, I really want to run a 50K this year. That's I'm just, I, I really want to push that boundary and, and see how it goes. Um, and then there's there's some American races that I'm interested in, like Broken Arrow Sky Race and um, Way Too Cool 50K. And then my big goal is the Golden Trail Series. So this year it'd obviously be not a stage race. It would be an international series. Um, and that's, that's the big goal because I feel like I have more to give for an isolated event. Um, and I think I could do really well in it and it excites me. So I think if international travel happens, that's the ultimate goal. If it doesn't, I have plan B's and plan C's with some FKTs. Um, I want to run rim to rim in the grand Canyon. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of hope for the future. Um, I got my COVID vaccine two days ago. So, um, Ready to race, ready to go. <laughs> How'd you get that so soon? I'm um do you know Chris Mendoza? Uh not personally, but I know of him. Yeah. Okay. Well he's a he's an anesthesiologist and um eventually I'd I'd like to enter the medical world as a PA. Um not right this moment, but I'm helping him out right now with um some of his business and stuff. So um with that, I'm in, with the healthcare position, they take priority in Colorado. So got my back, got my sore arm, but yeah. Is it, was that the extent of it? Yeah. Yeah. I felt completely normal. I just can't lift my arm past here. So <laughs> it's a little pathetic, but it's okay. Good thing I don't do OCR right now. Well, my, my last question for you is the one I've wanted to ask this whole time because I'm a gear junkie. Mm-hmm. How did you get associated with Solomon with no, no background in trail yeah. and no indication that you would be any good at it? Yeah. Um, and I mean that in the nicest way possible. Of course. Yeah. I, well, I got associated with them after, so that, that first North American sky running championship I won, even though I fell down the mountain, I still got second in that one. And then the Spartan trail race, um, the Spartan trail national championship, not thing that one. <laughs> so those two races, um, combined with some FKTs, I, Johnny had convinced me to reach out to a few me. So I reached out to them and, um, they were actually super interested. They really were interested in people that had promise and people that had potential rather than somebody with this massive resume. Um, so I'm, I feel really lucky in that sense. And then I, I think in 2020, I kind of proved that I have worth. So I, I just re-signed with them actually. Um, and I feel a little bit like, thank you. I feel a little less like a fraud this year. Like last year, I don't know. I, I felt like a little bit of a fraud. I was like, I'm very new to this sport. Like you're putting a lot of um, hope on two races. But um, this year, I feel like I definitely solidified that that I deserve that. So yeah. I mean, Solomon's, that's up there in terms of trail aspirations. And you mm-hmm. nailed that. 
Yeah. And then you lived up to it and now that's you. Yeah. Yeah. And Solomon is amazing. They've been awesome through it all. And and I'm super grateful to be able to work with them. And um, yeah, it's been so exciting. And just another thing that never, I never, ever expected to happen. So what are your, your, your absolute favorites from their trail line? Um, I am a huge fan of um, the S-Lab Cross. We run in those a lot. Mm. I ran every day of Portugal in them except for one. Um, I really, the other day I wore the Amphibs and I really like those. Those are great for OCR people too, actually, because they like, mm-hmm. they're really good with water and um, they're super light. So you could technically swim in them if you needed to. Um, so most of my faster runs are in those two trails. And what do you like about the cross over the the ultra soft grounds? Um, you know, I haven't had great experiences with the ultra soft grounds. So the cross has a little bit more, like, I feel like it's a little more stable um, mm. and it has a little more substance to it. The, the soft grounds for me, they kind of hurt my plantar. Um, and I don't know if that's just the shoes that I've been used to wearing in the past, um, but I haven't. I, the, for some reason, I mean, there were so many people running in them in Portugal and they're a great shoe and, and Johnny loves them. But for some reason, I never got into them as much as Amphib. Um, the Amphib is a super similar shoe, but it feels like it has a little bit more. Um, it's like stiffer. It, yeah, it's stiffer. And I feel like I can handle more terrain on it. Uh, yeah. Whereas I, I feel like my ankles aren't super reliable when I'm wearing the soft ground. Okay. And everyone asks always for pack recommendations. What's your go-to? Uh, they have, oh my gosh, I don't know the exact name of it. It's the S-Lab um, 8, something. Eight. Eight. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It's actually, I've had horrible experiences with, because um, like the whole hydration thing was new to me, but I wore um, one of Amelia's packs because I really didn't have any when I first started. And it like chafed my collarbones off. And so <laughs> Solomon, the, I think it's like the ultra eight or something. S lab mm-hmm. ultra eight. It's amazing. It's been perfect. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, speak, you, you mentioned something about Johnny sort of coaxing you to, to look for sponsors. Has he, has he guided you towards dabbling in OCR at all? Or are you going to stick to the trails exclusively? I think there's a few OCR women listening that might want to know. That's yeah. Awesome. Yeah. You know, my heart is definitely in trails right now, but um, I have a whisper in my ear all the time with Johnny. And actually, I live with um, Callie Schweikert, too. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of OCR people that are like, you should try it. You should try it. And I I really wouldn't be opposed to it. I would definitely try it. Um, I mean, there's no better time than now to, to try new things. So um, there's a chance that I try one. I think the first one I try, it would be more of a, like, I'm doing this for fun. Like, let's see what happens. But um yeah i'm not like 100 percent turned away by it so so that's a hard maybe do you join them on any of their strength or grip or any atypical running workouts i do not um no most of my workouts are pretty typical for running but um johnny and i do some strength together i don't do grip strength per se but we did go to the obstacle gym one time um i held my own for a little bit but i definitely could use some work on on the grip strength and probably a spear throw i'll tell you what you could pick up a spear and grip strength quicker than they could pick up climbing and descending okay well i'm not pushing you into it you got to pursue what you you love yeah no but i think it's nice i mean you've we just talked all about how i went so drastically from road to trail i think it would be silly for me to say no i'm never trying it because 
Um, I kind of promised myself I wouldn't say that ever. So um, I think I would definitely, I would definitely try it. Just do Breck or Tahoe or something and something in the mountains, something yeah, up high. Cool, where like the running's cool too. Cause I, I wouldn't really be interested in something like the Jacksonville course. That's um, I mean, I like the running part of it, but I feel like the obstacles come at you so fast with that one that it's like, I'd be stuck on the first obstacle and everyone else is. Well, it seems like when you try new things, they go well. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Probably be all right. Um, I don't know if I have anything else else for you, Bailey. I think this has been super, um, super. I think there's some people that are going to hear this and get, get a lot out of it. I think appreciate you going into sort of your past and going through the mud and kind of ending up where you are and, I'm excited to see what happens with you over the next year or two, to be honest. So Bracken, you got anything else for Bailey today? No, just a, a final congratulations and thank you. Congratulations thank you. for getting to where you are at because you are now one of the, the few that get through what you've been through and come out the other side stronger. And thank you for being another voice in this industry that doesn't just sit by idly. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think this is, um, it's a super important conversation and it means so much to see um, men and coaches that are really invested in it because that's, that's where the future's at. That's where the change needs to happen. Historically, our gender has struggled. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. I'm forgiving. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. I look forward to following along this next year. Thanks. Have a great day.